Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is Michael Begler, who with his writing partner Jack Emile, created the terrific series The Nick in 2014. This year they came on board HBO's Perry Mason to serve as showrunners for season two, and they have both expanded the show's scope and vision of Los Angeles and dug deeper into the characters that were so wonderfully established in season one. There's lots to talk about with this season, and I was particularly interested in how Begler and his co-writers crafted the mystery component of the series and I was surprised by the answer. If you have not made it to episode 7, there is a spoiler late in this podcast, so you might want to come back after you watch. Here's our conversation. So, to start, I'm curious, coming on to a pre-existing show like this, what were your conversations like with people like HBO and Team Downey about uh, what kinds of things you wanted to carry over from the first season of Perry Mason and where you wanted to kind of strike out in new directions? Um, well, I mean, the great thing was that the, there was so much good groundwork done, you know, in that first season, the characters were so well developed by Ron Fitzgerald and Roland Jones and team Downey and which made it really helpful. But so we, we wanted to a honor that, but expand on them. You know, we wanted to get a little more granular with each, each of the characters. Um, we wanted to go home with them. We wanted to get, learn more about their personal lives to see how that would interact with a, with a case. Um, also, we really wanted to expand LA. It felt like the first season, as great as it was, it was a bit claustrophobic. I mean, I think that was done by design, but um, LA is such an expansive city and there are so many pockets of different communities and ideas. And, and we felt like we really want to see where we can take it. And when you start doing the research and you see how much is going on, like that that was very important to us. Well, that is one of the things I really liked about this season was the kind of expansive view of LA. But it's one thing to, you know, say that. It's another thing to actually create period LA mm -hmm. in contemporary LA. I mean, and, you know, I was really impressed with what your production designer pulled off and uh, just, you know, how convincing all the period detail is. And you've got these pretty, you know, got a lot of scenes with what look like dozens or even hundreds of extras, yes. all that kind of stuff. I mean, what are the challenges and tricks to pulling off period detail on a TV schedule and budget? Oh, my God. Um, well, thank you, HBO, for the budget. That's number one. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's just working with people who are extremely passionate about it. We had such an amazing team with you know, Keith uh, Cunningham is a production designer, Kate Adair is the uh, uh, costume designer, and they just threw themselves into it. I think what's also great about LA is that so much of it is preserved. You know, the locations that we had were incredible, both in the interior and exteriors. Um, so that really helped. Um, I think that, that, you know, look, I did the Nick, and the Nick was, was tricky in New York sometimes because, again, you're talking about over 100 years ago that you had to find the right locations. Here, we're talking about the 1930s, so it was a little easier to, to, to find those pockets, but you also had to find those places that weren't haven't been shot a thousand times. Or if you're going to those locations, how do you make it look different? So I think just having people who just really got into what they were doing, it was all of us. It was all, we all had this great collaborative spirit in it. 
that helped it to just push it to to the level that it that it got to. Well, and in terms of the way you wanted to present LA, I mean, what kind of research and reference materials did you have in terms of I mean, were you looking at photography, old newspapers, mm-hmm. what kind of stuff was influencing the way you guys wanted this to look? Anything and everything we can get our hands on. So much photography, looking at pictures. I think it's through the DWP they have this incredible archive of photographs, which uh, of just this city and all different aspects. Like so, so for example, one of the first photographs that I saw was of a couple sitting on Venice Beach, and behind them was a forest of oil derricks, and that was just so arresting. And to think about L.A. as an oil city was something I never came to mind. And to start going down that rabbit hole and to looking into that. So then, yes, then we look into um, newspapers.com is the greatest resource. Um, And just reading the papers from the period and getting so much out of that. Talking to the different experts that we had on the show, which we had three of them. We had uh, Bill Deverell, who who, who's out of USC, knows everything about California and the West, and, and the history of Los Angeles. Elizabeth Logan, who is was our legal expert out of USC, and then Natalia Molina, who was the Mexican expert. Those three were an incredible resource. So between that, a number of books, and quite frankly, um, going back and watching as many noir films as I could get my hands on, um, and that include all the writers. The thing is, we were all such great fans of, of of Criterion that we could go back and look at all that stuff and put that all together to to find the story that we needed to. Well, that was going to be my next question: was the what some of the cinematic influences or reference points were? I mean, do you what was your thinking in terms of you know what you wanted to take from those noir movies, and was there a sense in which there are certain cliches you want to avoid? Yeah, we definitely wanted to avoid anything that people felt, any tropes, anything that you've seen a lot. You know, there's so many comparisons. You'll always hear like, "Oh, it's Chinatown," and but we didn't want it. You know, we don't want it to be Chinatown. We want it to be its own animal. Um, so I can't really speak to a specific film um, that was like, that's what I want to emulate. Or I, I think it was just so much of it was just all of it. But that included not only so many of the classic American noir films, um, but also Japanese noir. Like uh, me and the other writers, we just fell in love with all of those, whether it's High and Low, the Kurosawa movie, or um, Occult is My Passport, or Stray Dogs. Like those things were definitely influencing us on in, on just the way that these that the how gray the characters were, and I think that was the biggest takeaway, that that these characters aren't so black and white. They aren't so light and dark as you see in the lighting of a of a noir film. That there were so many different facets and flaws and sides to them that made it that I think really really spoke to us. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about a series is you do have the time to kind of dig into all of those different facets of all the characters. But another thing is, you know, to me watching it, it seemed like the daunting thing as a writer would be, you know, plotting a mystery story over the course of eight hours. And I'm curious where you even start with something like that. Do you know setting out who did it, what the resolution is going to be? And are you reverse engineering from that or how, how where do you even begin in terms of the construction of it? That's a great question um, because this was the first time that I ever did this. 
um, you know, my partner Jack and I, we started out, um, we had done the Nick and we had done some other pilots in between that and this, but, but a courtroom drama, uh, a, a mystery, ne never, never had done it before. So it was definitely daunting. I think we just started out from the place of what's the most interesting story to tell and, and for Perry Mason, what haven't we seen before? And so that started with, well, so much of when you think of Perry Mason is he defends the innocent. Well, we were starting to think, well, what happens if he defends the guilty? And what does that look like? So I think that was sort of our germ and our starting point. And then again, going back to what I was saying about the oil derricks, then, you, then we were adding on the layer of all the historical uh, research that we had done. And from there, I think, then we started to build out from this idea of the very wealthy and the and the people in the Hoovervilles and how do they intersect. And then that, I think the last part was the whodunit, I think. When I really, when I really start to think about how we broke the season. And as you're going along in the season, it's changing constantly. Like, you know, we were writing and rewriting up until they called rap. And, you know, the show, obviously, in terms of the depiction of class and all of that, you know, it has certain contemporary resonances. But is that kind of stuff, things that you think about as you're writing in terms of like, you know, trying to are you are you trying to put the sociological stuff in in the writing phase or is it more you're just trying to tell a story and that organically grows out of it? We're definitely not thinking of uh, any sort of comparison today, but that's the the beauty and the sad part of doing a historical drama is that you see how humanity hasn't changed that much over time. So um, we are just trying to tell the most accurate uh, and most interesting story we can, the most entertaining. Um, but what we what we hope from it is that it has a ripple effect, that you watch it, you're entertained, you enjoy it, but you're it still resonates and you're thinking about it. And the fact that it does sort of resonate with what is happening today is sort of a bonus, um, I think. But again, we don't we never set out with that in mind. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by the role of the showrunner because it's got, you know, obviously this creative component, but then there's also this managerial aspect to it. And you're and you're managing other writers. Um, what's the collaboration like with the other writers on the show? Is this the kind of show where you've got do you have a writer's room? How are you all working together? It actually started out with just Jack and I, and foolishly, we thought we could do it all. But then you run into, you run out of time, and you know you have to, you have to get into production, and and um, you're you're falling behind in in the script writing. And so, about mid swing, we brought on uh, more writers to help us out, and that was a godsend. I mean, these the, we had. Uh, a writing team of um, Riso Katz and Pedro Pirano. We had, and then we had two staff writers in um, Elizabeth Boxa and um, uh, Nico uh, Gutierrez Kovner. And I, I want to call them out by name because they were they were just so helpful to us. Um, it was a room, and we really needed to break the second half of the season. Um, while we were in the midst of shooting, I think, episode three and four. So we had to break and write them and really still figure out the mystery. Where are we going to land this plane? Um, and so the way it really worked was um, we, we broke out the outlines together. I assigned scenes to them. 
um, they, uh, they wrote the scenes, they came back through me. I then took the scenes. It was almost like they laid down a primer. I, I wrote the scene. So it all had a, a sort of a, rewrote the scene. So it had a sort of a, uh, singular voice and we, um, and we crafted it together. It's so amazing to me that a show with this much intricate plotting, you know, that you were, you know, into shooting and then still writing the later episodes. And I'm curious what that, what kind of conversations that creates with the actors. I mean, first of all, the actors on this show, and I'm talking about the regulars who were there season one, you know, they, they were there first season with a different team and now they're coming on with you. I mean, is there a sort of process by which you and your partner have to kind of gain the actor's trust? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We spent a fair amount of time with, uh, Matthew, Chris, and Juliet, um, because they embodied these characters way before we came on the thing. You know, they re- they breathed in and out them, and and we wanted to honor that as much as possible. We wanted to to listen to what they felt they brought to the character and what they wanted to see in their character. So yeah, there were long discussions before, and there were long discussions during. I mean. Uh, we would just, there were times where we were just in each other's trailers and just discussing what was coming up. I can, I can see myself like sitting with Matthew behind, uh, the, the Phipps house between, uh, scenes and just trying to figure out like, how is he going to present himself in that final episode in court? You know, what does he want to say? Um, and I wanted it to feel as authentic to Matthew and to Chris and to Juliet as possible for their characters. Absolutely. This is what I loved about this experience more than anything is that it was a true collaboration. Everybody wanted to make the best possible show. And that goes for, you know, the 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 production design and the, and the wardrobe and all that stuff, but also for every actor on the show. I don't, it didn't stop with those three. It, it went with people like uh, Hope Davis and Paul Racy, um, everyone, Justin Kirk, everyone I felt had a voice and, and it was very important that we, we listened to and respected those voices. Well, you know, you mentioned some of the supporting characters and I'm curious, some of the new characters on here, like Brooks McCutcheon, for example, um, does a character like that come from, are there sort of historical, uh, again, reference points for that, that guy? Like, is he based on real people? Where is that? Is that coming out of your research? Where are you coming up with a guy? Yeah, like that? that specifically did come out of research. That is based on Ned Doheny. And he was the scion of Ed Doheny, who was the oil magnate of, of LA and one of the most wealthiest, or excuse me, the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest people in um, Los Angeles at that time. But amazingly, um, Ned Doheny was murdered, I think, in like 1928. Very different circumstances. I mean, he was killed by one of his closest friends, but he was kind of an ne'er-do-well. Like he was sort of a, can I curse? Uh, He's kind of a fuck up. He was getting into trouble, but what was also very interesting was he was killed in his house. And as soon as it happened, his father they didn't bring in the police. He brought on in his own like private uh, investigative team. I mean, the Pinkertons. I mean, and there were dozens of them that showed up to the house before the police even got there. So Ed was trying to control the narrative way before the, the city could can get their hands on it. And you've also this season got a couple of new love interests. You've got the Anita character and then you've got 
uh, Perry Mason's love interest played by Catherine Watterson. Um, talk a little bit about them and what the thinking was creating those characters and how what what you were sort of hoping to bring out in the pre-existing characters by introducing them. Well, for both of them, we wanted them to be in um, more substantial relationships, um, some that felt like there was deeper feelings for both of them. You know, Della, when she was with Hazel, that was pretty chaste. You know, it was it was behind closed doors for the most part. It was all in the in the in the boarding house and most of the time behind a locked door room, you know, in one of their rooms. And um, and so we wanted her to be in a more grown up relationship. We wanted her but to challenge her. Uh, Anita is a little more adventurous, a, a little more of an extrovert, a little more willing to be who she is and true to who she is and to to sort of navigate the city um, as a queer woman. And I think to to bring Della out into that world was a little frightening to Della, but exciting. And uh, Anita is actually based on a a real screenwriter of the time named Anita Luce. Now we don't know for certain if Anita was was gay, but um, it we just thought that that would be an interesting place to take Della. And then for Perry, you know, the I love the relationship with Lupe last season. I thought that was extremely well done. But we wanted someone that could bring him out of the shadows a little more um, in in a relationship. And it's that scene with Anita and and Perry on the horse. Um, you know, they ride to the edge of of the uh, the cliff, and they're looking out at the expansive l a. And she says, "You know what I love about this town? Nobody tells you what was, only what can be. and for for us, that was really important because it was, it was bringing Perry into the light. It was letting him see the expansiveness of the city as opposed to the claustrophobia of the of season one and the buildings where he couldn't see beyond anything. And to have that in a character to sort of open him up that way was, was important. I mean, only to see him uh, sabotage it, which which we also love because there's only so much he could he can handle. Um, but but we love that what the possibility that Jenny brought for Perry. Um, well, talking about the expansiveness again, you know, I guess it makes me think about the department heads, you know, your cinematographer, production designer, hair, makeup, all those people. What are the conversations you have with them in terms of just the kind of overall guiding principles for the show? Well, because the stage was so well set um, in first season, um, I think it was well, it was to just to keep that going, to to keep that richness going, to make it noir in color um, was important. But I think specifically for second season, we wanted more light. We wanted physically more light in it because we feel that L.A. has a very specific light to it. And it's almost hard to put into words, but as you drive down the street on a sunny day, there's only, there's almost nothing like it. And we wanted to try and capture that. And so I think that we, we, we did that in with, with the cinematography, with the lighting, you know, when we see the beauty of the Oceano club, which was the beach club that, that Brooks and his father are sitting at, 
or we see that massive backyard of, of, of Camilla's, or even the interior of Camilla's, um, uh, the piano room that she's in. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we show the truth of, of the poverty, you know, to really, to, to build out that incredible Hooverville, which was built up in Santa Clarita to show that dust. I mean, we were so lucky on the days that we were shooting there because it was windy and to have that dust rising up, all of that to really give that texture and flavor because we never wanted to feel, when you watch a show like this, you want to be immersed and you, you want to forget where you are. And as much as we could do that um, through all of all those departments that you're talking about, that was that was key. And how do you see the role of the director on a show like this where you've got guest directors coming in as opposed to, you know, a show where you've got one director the whole time? And something like this, you know, what's the line in terms of, the, you know, wanting them to keep a consistency but also wanting them to bring whatever their individuality is to the show? I, I mean, I loved all the directors we had and the different voices be, because they come from so many different places. You know, most of the, most of the stage was set first season with Tim Van Patten, who did an exceptional job. But what I would say is I think it depends on which scripts they got. You know, I really feel like each we had four blocks. Each of the directors took two episodes. And I think that each of the blocks brought something different. The first two were really sort of setting us in motion. The second two, I think, were very emotional, very character driven. Then in... Um, Though we broke up, episode five and eight were done by Mariali Rivas, and 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 it was six and seven that were done by Nina Corrado uh, Lopez. And those two, six and seven, I felt were very, you know, they're very plot driven, and they are very propulsive and very twisty. And so you needed someone who was going to capture that as well. So I think that that having talks about. I mean, we had very long tone meetings with each of them because it was it was important to it's a tricky thing because you you want to have each of those blocks to have their own stamp. But at the same time, it has to it has to feel consistent. It has to feel like it's all of a piece in a mystery show like this, where it's so dependent on when and how the audience receives information, how much fine-tuning of that kind of thing is there in the editing room? I mean, is that all stuff that sticks pretty close to what the script is, or do you find that you have to mess around a lot with the show and editing to get that exactly right when you're dropping that information in? It's definitely a mixed bag, you know? I'm trying to think about... I mean, there was there were episodes where we we definitely took them apart and, and, and put them back together. I can say specifically the finale. Like, we really had to look at look at that. We had all this amazing footage, but we had to make sure that it was landing the right way. Um, I think when we when we first put it together, we're like, it's just, it doesn't have what we need yet. With certain episodes, we were able to sort of keep the line the way it was in the script, but definitely you want to, as as we are going, as we're building it in the, in, in, in post, we want to make sure that we are keeping the audience leaning in at all times. So we and and that we keep the energy level up, that we're keeping the propulsion going. And so I think that as we were getting into the latter part, we probably played around with it more in post um, to 
to make sure that we were we were doing all those things that we set out to do, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, and before I ask this question, I'll say for people listening, if you haven't watched the last episode yet, maybe this is a good time to turn off and come back. But I am curious, at what point did you know who was responsible for all of this? And, um, you know, because again, I'm, you know, just the fact that you were saying you were still breaking these stories as you're going. I mean, when, when did you realize who the mastermind behind the, kill, the killings was? We knew early on who it was. <laughs> Camilla. I, I, um, uh, I think early on, we, we definitely knew the circumstance and we'd sort of figured out the piece of it with um, how the breadcrumbs that sort of led to uh, it ultimately being her. However, what we didn't know was um, exactly when we were going to get there and when we were going to to nail her. You know, we reveal it at the end of episode seven and which was a choice. Like, you know, there's a lot of shows where you would wait until the last possible minute. But we said, well, what happens if we if I think and I think that we were doing that, we were holding it off and holding it off and it wasn't working. And so we felt like, well, maybe the best thing to do is like, why don't we end our seventh episode with that and then figure out like, well, what do they got to do? Because there's so much still at stake. There's so much with the case. There's so much with these boys. You know, these boys' lives are still in Perry's hands. And one of them is guilty. One of them pulled the trigger. So how is Perry going to figure his way out of this? Um, and that to me was what was so interesting about that last episode. It was not the big, you know, Scooby-Doo, take the mask off. It was, well, now what do we do with this information? And how do I use it to my advantage? And that's the great moment for Perry, you know, in the end, whereas where we start him is a, is a, is a guy who wants to run away and he's doing everything for himself. And that to, to land him in a place where he's selfless, he, he takes the fall, he does what he has to do for, the, for his clients uh, and, for the, and for justice, you know, that cynicism and that honor at the end, that was, we found that at the end. We didn't find that final thing for Perry to do, that final selfless act. That was the thing that took a long time to find. Yeah, it's a great, really satisfying final episode. And uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, actually, it's kind of a weird side thing, but I really like on this show the end credits sequences that are sort of built around these images that have been laid in or hinted at during the show. What, where did that idea come from? And That was a thing that they did in first season, and it was done by a company called Shine. And um, yeah, they are amazing. I mean, I think what it was, I, and because again, I wasn't there for first season, the team Downey, they really liked this idea of that you leave this sort of lingering thing in 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 the, the viewer's mind of something from the episode that's going to sort of bring you into the next one. So this season, I mean, I had personal favorites for sure in terms of, of what we showed. I love the rats uh, at the end of episode three. I love the seagulls at the end of episode six. Um, but it but it was this idea of what is it we want to carry over. Um, I know people have really responded also to the burning of the shoes in episode five. And I know what they did in 
the the only thing that they sort of repeated from season one to season two was in the finale that they did those sort of sepia tone pictures that look like they're from the era uh, of things that happened in season one, and now we do it in season two. Um, but these the people at Shine just brought us all these amazing ideas and all these amazing images, and then we just sort of figured out with them like what is the best sort of story to tell within those closing credits. So if there is a season three, do you uh, already have ideas about where you want to take the show? Uh, yes, uh, very much so. Uh, I'll quickly say that um, Bill Deverell, who was the um, you know the LA expert and um, California expert, he coincidentally lives around the corner from me. And so we have taken walks, had gotten beers, gotten coffee, and we just shoot the shit and he tells me stuff. I'm literally, my jaw drops and I'm just like, we got to use that. We got to use that. We got to use that. So I'm hoping for a season three, four, five, six. I like, I can't wait to tell more Perry stories for sure. 